Welcome to the pulpit ministry of Christ Community Church in South Florida, aiming to make, mature, and multiply disciples by preaching and teaching God's Word based on the sufficiency of Scripture. And now, let's join Pastor Bernie Diaz for the message. You know, we have to pray prayers like that because our world is filled with a lot of anxiety and conflict right now, isn't it? Uh, There's uncertainty, instability around the globe. You know what's going on with the Middle East. It's happening among families, too, in unprecedented ways. Even instability going in and around the church of Jesus Christ. Um, Evil is a real thing that even skeptics of our faith are acknowledging and coming to grips with in the aftermath of the Israeli-Hamas conflict, which is going to go on. Last week there was a story of a 13-year-old boy who, in a, just out of nowhere, stabbed his mother to death in Hialeah in a way that suggests a massive conflict may have gone on there and what I think, my opinion, may have been an attack from the enemy of our souls and a possible act of demon possession. And that sort of thing seems to be a bit more common these days. And just when you think the church, evangelical in particular, can offer up moral clarity in our unstable, confused world, a prominent popular pastor of a mega church in Georgia preached a message justifying a conference their church held in which um, homosexuality was a normative Christian attitude to confess and deal with and so it's an occasion where sin is just being tolerated in the church in the name of compassion at the worst possible time and it's a message that he admitted afterward is causing division and guess what in one way or another that's always been the case in the environment in which the church has always existed and thrived I'm talking about evil and disunity because we are people Right? But Christian citizens also, as we recently studied, though we're imperfect on this side of glory, we should still be joyful and at peace, especially with each other, when there's instability and all kinds of craziness going on around us. But this division and disunity in the church is still a problem that we have to deal with. And I emphasize we, as in the local church, internally should deal with it in order to bring unity and stability, as you're going to see in this text here. As we come now to the beginning of uh, Philippians chapter 4, this is just another great chapter in this letter. And I said before, this is one of my favorites chapters in all of Scripture. You've got verses, you've got phrases in here that are often quoted by people in and around the church that we'll dig into eventually. Verses 6, verse 7, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. I love that one in the middle of verse 11. It says, I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. Everyone's heard verse 13. I can do all things through him or Christ who strengthens me. And verse 19, we unpacked this promise last time. My God shall supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Jesus. So it's that kind of a chapter. But in this short text here at the beginning, we have a passage that's very, very practical for us today as the letter is going to start to come to a close. This is the final chapter. And you might remember the Philippian church, so you get the background here, was a Roman colony in Macedonia, which today is we would refer to as modern-day Turkey. And they're going to live like Christian citizens in a time where persecution of the faith is starting to take place. Worldly false leaders are called out by Paul in chapter 1. They're infiltrating, they're infecting the church, as well as some legalistic Jewish believers. And so they're going through their own bit of anxiety and unrest. And therefore, Paul is concerned that this disunity can fuel conflict can result in conflict in a local church body like Philippi. So there's a need for Paul to address this issue. And he takes it on in this chapter in a couple of different ways. In general, he's going to talk about the need to teach peace and then contentment. Peace and contentment. 
which by the way are components, big components of what we've been calling in this series, the Christian's joy. That continues to be the overarching theme of this letter. So how do we get this joy? That's what we all need to know. One way comes from the passage before us. Paul is going to talk about here something very interesting. Christian conflict resolution. Or what I like to call the discipleship that counsels. The discipleship that counsels. What do I mean by that? Well, disciples born again, who are born again believers of Jesus... We are to help others become better followers of Jesus. That's the Great Commission, okay? That's discipleship. And what may come as a surprise to many of you in this room and to many, many Christians is that discipleship entails counseling. Counseling. Because we think of conflict resolution or peacemaking as something you need outside help from. You know, that's the norm. You have a problem... I need a professionally trained and licensed counselor or therapist or psychologist, maybe Christian integrated, maybe not, to help me. I'm glad you're sitting down. Guess what? You don't find anything like that at all in the pages of Scripture. The idea of God's people going first and foremost outside the community of faith to get help in resolving conflicts or dealing with issues of the heart. If you do find that, let me know. I, I've never been able to find that. What you do see from Paul is that discipleship and counseling begins with encouragement and exhortation. That's something everyone in this room who is in Christ can and should do for one another. So let's start with looking at discipleship and counseling with encouragement. The very first verse of this text, Paul says, Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Did you catch it? What's the therefore, therefore? That word is always a connection to what has just come before, which better helps us understand the text that we're in. And that alludes, of course, to the end of chapter 3. Paul's making an argument for Christian citizenship. We are to follow Christ because we belong to Christ, and that fuels our hope in Christ, which is his return, second coming of Jesus. That leads to our resurrection. That's going to transform us into complete Christ-likeness once and for all. Hallelujah. So Paul connects that thought to this section of Scripture, and that runs all the way through verse 9, and how we develop peace and joy. Not only in our own hearts, but in the community of faith we belong to, which is the local church. He starts it with this classic Pauline-like statement of affection. Okay, he says, whom I love you, church. I long for you. That's a strong desire. You're my joy. You're my crown. My beloved. He tells them he loves them twice in one sentence. He desires to be with them big time. Just like you should. And of course, that word and idea, joy, again, you're my joy, it creeps in again. He keeps weaving that word and concept throughout this letter. He says the Philippians were a source of joy for him. Again, what is the Christian's joy? Always keep this at the top of your mind. Because you need it these days. In short, remember, it's a deep, soul-satisfying, contented feeling and sense of grace that all is well with your soul, as the old song goes, because of who you are in Christ and what you have in Christ. In fact, our joy is somewhat similar to that shalom peace for the Hebrew, that no matter what's happening, things are going well with me because I'm in Christ. It's that idea, no matter what circumstance, negative or otherwise, you are joyful, happy, contented Christians. You have the gospel. You have the promises of it. You have a secure future again we look forward to. We call that the hope of glory, the hope of heaven. That help, that hope helps produce joy. Okay? And again, using another sports analogy here, he even considers a crown. He considers the Philippians a crown for him. And literally, from the Greek, that would refer to this wreath that they would be placed around the head of their Olympic games that signified a winner, a victor, 
of some kind of event. In our games today, you go to the Olympics and they put a medal around your neck, gold, silver, or bronze, right? What it is, is it's a symbol. It's, a, it's like a trophy or a prize. So Paul is declaring that this church, imperfect as it was, is maturing, growing in grace and sanctification, so much that Paul sees them suffering well in their lives and ministry, and all of that is a crown or a prize for him. It validates his ministry at Philippi. You know, and I'll tell you, it's a good thing. It reminds me of last week. This church of ours honored our pastors for Pastor Appreciation Month, and I was really grateful for that. It was outstanding. The gifts were outstanding. We're enjoying it. Much appreciated. But I'm going to tell you what I most appreciated about Pastor's Appreciation Month. It wasn't the gift cards. What I most appreciated, and I appreciate any day or time, is your words and the thoughts that you shared with us in the cards themselves. Because many of you told us what this church and our ministry means to you and your family. And you have no idea how meaningful that is to a pastor. I think I can speak for Pastor George at least on that as well. So hearing that kind of encouragement and appreciation really makes all the work we do worth it. And really came to my mind as I was preparing this message because it makes me think of Christ Community Church, you all, as my crown and joy. Really does. And then Paul here changes his tone, though, immediately from this warm, fuzzy, holy kiss thing to encouragement, exhortation. He encourages them or calls them to do what? To stand firm in the faith. And that is a phrase seen all over the New Testament that speaks to staying faithful to God no matter what. It's, it's very basic. But he says, be faithful thus. Or he means like in this way. Be faithful in this particular way. What way? Not everything was sunshine and roses in the church at Philippi. There was a conflict going on between two women in particular who are mentioned here. And it may have been a threat to spread throughout the church if it was not going to be dealt with. Right? This is something we have to keep in mind because unresolved, unreconciled conflicts lead to tension, bitterness, and even worse, it can cause disunity and division in the body of Christ. It can be like a pandemic. And believe me, I know. We know this. So Paul reaches out to the church in general and then to some folks in particular to help with this conflict. So after this encouragement, we have this exhortation in the next couple of verses. Paul says in the exhortation, I entreat Euodia and I entreat Synthache to agree in the Lord. Now that might, it, that might stick out for you because it's pretty rare for Paul to call out people by name in a church in this letter. You know why? All of his letters would be read out loud like what we're doing here by the leadership of the church to a congregation in public. So everyone in the church in Philippi is like, oh, Euodia and Synthache have an issue? I think they probably knew it already. But it's that important. And yes, in verse 1, this is an affectionate rather than a rebuking kind of a mention. He calls for them to come to the same mindset in the Lord. He's calling for unity. He's saying, let's major in the majors. Minor and the minors, doctrinally speaking, and even on some cultural stuff. And he's saying, we don't even know. Actually, we don't even know exactly what the conflict was between these women because it's not mentioned in the text. And these women, by the way, are not mentioned anywhere else in the Bible. But we do know, according to verse 3, they're close partners with Paul in the gospel ministry. They're members of that church. So he obviously wants church members to agree. The word agree in the original language carries the idea of being of the same mind, living in harmony with one another, as other translations have put it. And Paul's even entreating them to get it together, both these women. That old English word entreat, you don't hear that anymore. That's like Victorian language. That would be better translated today probably as, I urge you, I strongly appeal to you with all my heart, 
I practically beg you. That's probably the closest word to entreat. I practically beg you to women to get along. And what I like what Paul is doing here is he's not taking sides in this conflict. He's not saying, Euodia, you go to Syntyche and get it right. Or vice versa. He talks to each one individually in that phrase. He's saying each of you should take responsibility for resolving the conflict and making peace. For instance, we can all relate to this. Let's say you're offended by someone. Could be in your own home. Could be a family member. Could be here in the church. If they have said or done something to offend you, you need to move towards that person. Okay? Not primarily in a text, by the way, which is the easy way out. Because those are very limited as to what you can say. And all the emojis in the world cannot properly communicate the emotions that need to be expressed. You know that. You know that. But here's why. Because the offender may be ignorant of what they've done. They may not know. Or the extent. So, then you talk about it. Come together, you talk about it. You reason together, as the Bible says. And if the offender agrees... They're responsible to ask for the forgiveness of the offended, who then in turn, as Jesus instructed Peter and his apostles, you forgive the offended on the condition the offender gives this apology and the offended feels that it's genuine, it's heartfelt. Listen, this is how peacemaking and relational reconciliation happen every day. Paul's not glossing over this disagreement either. He's not covering it up. Love does cover a multitude of sins. If it's not a big deal, you can cover that. But sometimes you can't. Listen, we are going to disagree, Christians, especially on lesser or non-essential issues. But he's encouraging them, nonetheless, to find, he exhorts them to find unity, listen, in the gospel. In the gospel. That's the major of majoring in the majors. He, he mentions the concept three times in this letter, by the way, before he even gets to chapter 4. You know how he's talking about we should live lives worthy of the gospel. In the middle of chapter 1, verse 27, he says, I want to hear from you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Chapter 2, verse 2. Complete my joy, he says, How? By being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Chapter 3, verse 16. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Together, that, that implies gospel truth. Okay, This is where it's important now for us to take a moment to understand And I'm going to introduce you to a concept you may not have heard before called theological triage. Theological triage. We getting a little heavy? Yeah, I think you can do it. I think you can follow here. We have to understand this theological triage thing because you and I are going to disagree on occasion and we have to know how to deal with that. Okay? What do I mean by triage? You know what triage is? You remember if you're old enough like I am to remember the old TV show M.A.S.H.? Another acrostic, that's actually what it is. MASH stands for Mobile Army Surgical Hospital. And what a MASH unit was in times of war is that they would set up a little tent hospital in the field close to battle so that they could bring in those that have been injured and figure out, classify, categorize who had the priority of the greatest need of attention, of health care. Okay? The ingrown toenail was like way behind in terms of what needed to be dealt with in the MASH unit. That's triage. It's a French word, actually. And we have to do theological triage in categorizing sometimes our doctrinal disagreements. Why? So we don't get carried away with what Paul called in other letters of his disputable matters or matters of opinion. It's not that you can't hold to your opinions and conviction of conscience. We all have that on matters of opinion. And a lot of them are going to be cultural issues. You know what they are? Alcohol, tattoos, Halloween, 
Christmas trees. There's like dozens and dozens of these issues like this in the Bible that are more gray than black and white, primarily because this book was written New Testament 2,000 years ago, and these things didn't exist. So they couldn't be dealt with in black and white explicitly. You know, what do you watch on TV? Movies. What music can you listen to? Those are all things we have convictions on. That's all good, but they're disputable. They're opinions, by and large. This even happens among church leaders, like the methods of ministry. I was talking to our sister this morning, and we were talking about this in terms of denominations. Why do we have so many denominations? Well, this denomination likes to dunk believers only in the waters of baptism, and this one baptizes babies. We can't agree on that. So what do we do? We have a different denomination that does that. And there's not anything wrong with that, really, in and of itself, in the world we're in. I think God tolerates denominations, our denominations, within reason. You hold to your convictions as best as the Spirit gives you understanding on these issues. You express your views on them. Iron sharpens iron. It's all good, right? But listen, we're not to bind the conscience of another where the Scripture does not bind the conscience. Remember that. And there's a lot to say about this, about the weaker, stronger brother and sister relationship among Christians on ethical issues. We don't have time today to go into all that. But Paul, not only here, but places like in the book of Romans, 1 Corinthians, he says love ultimately wins out over our liberty and over what could be legalism. Okay? You do what's necessary to encourage unity in the body. For instance... Just to give you a taste of this, Romans chapter 14, verse 3, Paul says, let not the one, he's talking about eating and drinking. That was a big deal in their cultural context. He says, you know, it was like food offered to idols and stuff. He says, let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. Let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Okay, he's a believer. Verse 5, one person esteems one day could be a feast day, a holiday. One person esteems one day is better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Here it is. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. So on these disputable issues, you have to come to your own decision in the spirit as best as you understand. Now, how do we know then what are the hills to die on? What I, I use that phrase here a lot. Or what we call brick wall doctrines. Because a brick wall is hard to break. Shouldn't be broken. Shouldn't be scaled. What should we not compromise on that would divide us? That we have to have. We have to have gospel unity on it. I'm going to give you a little list of what I would call primary doctrines. Doctrine means teaching. Primary doctrines of the faith. These are what I would classify as being essential They are even definitional to the faith. You call yourself a Christian, I'm going to give you seven things at least. There could be more. Some people have shorter lists. Some theologians have longer ones. I got seven on my list. And I think these seven are things we all in this room, if you claim to be a Christian, you have to agree on this. You have to be on one mind. Number one, the existence of God. Duh. Not a tough one. I don't think you can call yourself Christian if you don't believe God is real and exists. Number two is big, the deity or the divinity of Jesus Christ. Jesus is God in the flesh. So we're talking about his incarnation. That includes the virgin birth. This is essential to what it means to be Christian. Number three, the resurrection of Christ. This is very important. We know this is really important because Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 says of this doctrine, it is of first importance. So that's how you know something is a hill to die on in a brick wall doctrine. Okay? I, I, Paul argues, and it's very safe to say, if you don't believe in the resurrection, there's no Christian faith. It doesn't exist. He said your faith is in vain. It's empty. It's meaningless if Christ didn't rise. Number four, the Trinity. The Trinity. That the Bible teaches that God is one being in essence and three persons at the same time. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It's a hill to die on. Number five, 
the substitutionary atonement or sacrifice of Jesus Christ. This is big because this is how you get saved. This is a salvation doctrine that includes justification by faith. All this means is that you believe that Jesus, as a substitute for you, died on a cross to forgive you of your sins. He paid the penalty. He paid the price. And in turn, his righteousness was credited to you by God. You have to believe that to be a Christian. Therefore, it's a primary essential doctrine. Number six, this is not just any book. This book was inspired and written by God. You must believe in the inspiration, inerrancy, and infallibility of the scripture, meaning God wrote a book using 40 authors over 1,500 years, but they wrote what God wanted said. The scripture teaches that, and that it makes no mistakes. It's incapable of making a mistake. That's what infallibility means. And then seventh and last, for me, the second coming of Christ. Not the secondary issue of the timing. I'm pre-mill, you're post-mill, you're amill, pre-millennial rapture. And you get into all of that and we can fuss and fight over that. Don't fuss and fight over that to the extent that you're going to break fellowship about it. What we all believe is that Jesus Christ, whenever it happens, however it happens, is a risen, coming again Lord and Savior who will rule and reign on the earth. Amen? Amen. Okay? So we all agree on that. The details are for interesting conversations, like what I would call secondary. Now you have what's called secondary doctrines, picket fence. I'm not going to show you the list. Just give you an example in the interest of time. These are things that you can separate on denominationally. And conviction. These are some, some issues like that. Uh, literal six-day creation. I believe literal six-day creation, you should believe in that. It's very important. Believe it or not, you don't have to believe in that to become a Christian. So you have to hold that intention to become a Christian. Okay? I said that. Um, Even some issues of sexuality, doctrines of grace, you know, sovereignty of God and salvation, human responsibility. We have good brothers and sisters in the faith that differ on that. Right? Calvinism, Arminianism, that kind of thing. Pneumatology, the study of spiritual gifts. Have they ceased? Do they continue? All of them. Good brothers and sisters in faith differ on that. And of course, as I mentioned, eschatology, eschaton, that's the study of the end things, last things, okay, end times. How that happens, what that looks like, we can differ on that. Why? Because this scripture is a little gray on some of the detail. So what's gray, we treat as gray. What's black and white, we treat as black and white. You with me? Does this all make sense? Then we have finally, and these are the big ones. This is the big one, which is the third in the category. Tertiary or third order doctrines. This is what I call dinner table conversation. This would be issues of conscience, on doubtful things, conviction, disputable things. They're important, but they're not as important. We're doing triage here. Not as important maybe as the others. We can feel strongly about them. Absolutely. Hold to your convictions. But we don't break fellowship over preferences. Worship music style. Oh. Lifestyle. Days that you observe. Drinking. Dress codes. Politics and government. Ideology. Affiliations. I'm going to tell you something. Sit down. Okay, you're already sitting. <laughs> it's possible to be a Democrat if you're a Christian. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> Not that I recommend that. I'm just saying. I'm just saying. I'm just talking. I'm just talking Bible. Okay. Entertainment and recreation. I'm going to differ on that. Wisdom issues like education, finances. We have to know how to talk about these things with each other and not go to war over secondary and tertiary issues because that unnecessarily leads to conflict and division in the camp. And get it, it negatively impacts our witness to the watching world. You've heard these arguments before from unbelievers. What, what is with you Christians? You fuss and fight over everything. 
You can't agree on anything. Now, those are overstatements, I think. But you get the point. We unnecessarily divide more than we should. So what do you do? What should we do? There's a big hint here on peacemaking or conflict resolution on stuff like this, shall we say, from the Christian perspective. If you're back in our text, flip back a page to, or so to Philippians chapter 2, that very memorable text, verse 3. Do nothing, Paul writes, from selfish ambition or conceit. Here it is, but in humility. Count others more significant than yourselves. Verse 4. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but to the interest of others. You got to do that. Look, when I talk with other pastors and church leaders about some of these issues, I, I, I know in my heart, I think you guys are wrong. You got it completely wrong. But you know what? I love them. And I know that on the essentials and the brick wall doctrines, the primary stuff, we're good. So it's okay. We can talk about it. We don't fuss and fight over it. Paul put it this way in Romans, again, chapter 12, verse 16. And this is a scripture meant for the church, where it says, live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty. That's an old word that just means prideful. But associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. That's humbling in itself. So Paul then asks this unknown co-worker back in our text, help him play peacemaker in this relationship. Philippians 4.3. He says, yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. What's up? What's a companion there? It's a peacemaker. Literally, in the original language, it's referring to a partner If you have a King James, I think it might say yoke fellow, a yoke fellow. You know what a yoke is, right? It's that collar put on the two beasts of burden, oxen pulling the plow, right? To sow seed. Well, they have to be going in the same direction, the same way, or it's not going to work. So that's what it means to be a yoke fellow, to be a partner, okay? That's this person, this true companion may have been Luke. Dr. Luke, who is very tight with Paul, may have been Epaphroditus. We know he delivered this letter, amongst other things. It could have been probably some unknown, well, very known local church member at Philippi. In fact, the word there for companion sounds like a common Greek name at that time, Sisygus. And there's a pretty hefty number of biblical scholars that think Paul is referring to this disciple in the church named Sisygus. Maybe true, because Paul named the ladies by name. But in either case, the congregation would know who this person is and what Paul's doing. Listen carefully. This is big. This is the application, the big idea here. He's calling for a fellow member of the church to help make peace between these ladies and help reconcile their relationship because they were having trouble doing it themselves. Paul's not going outside to another church for help. Little help. No. He's not telling these women, find the closest rabbi to you because at least they know the Old Testament scriptures. It'll be private and they can solve your problem. He's not saying that. He doesn't say, ladies, I know of a good secular counselor in town who studied Plato or Socrates or Aristotle like the Greco-Romans did at that time. Why not? Why doesn't he do that? Because the church family should deal with church family problems first. Paul's calling for this gospel partner in the church to help reconcile these women because they labored together. Or like another translation says, they shared my struggle together in the gospel. They were important. He says, let's keep it in house. It's a faith community. They all knew each other. They served in the gospel ministry together. How that happens, you can see in Acts 16 and 17. They serve with Clement. He's also mentioned here, tradition has it, he was the third bishop, as they called it then, of the Roman church. In fact, he wrote a letter called First Clement. It's not in your Bibles. Don't look for it. It's not inspired scripture. But historically, it's a pretty significant letter. And it's also thought that Clement was a very close associate of the Apostle John. All of their names and all these other fellow workers are in the book of life. The book of life. Folks, you want to be in this book. 
It's an Old Testament concept, okay? But let me say again, here and now, if you are a true, redeemed, born-again believer of Jesus, your name is in that book. What is the book? Where do you find it? Well, the Lord Jesus in Luke's Gospel referred to it as a book where the names are written in heaven. So that's where it is. You can't get it at the local library. The book of life. It's a set, it's a compilation of names of everyone over history who will live with God forever in heaven. That's why it's the book of life, meaning eternal life. It's the roll call of everyone who's ever been saved. Okay? Every Christian over the course of history, including Old Testament saints, saved by faith and the promise of the coming Messiah, the resurrection, etc., they're in there too. Revelation 3.5 puts it this way. The one who conquers, it's talking about those that fortitude of faith, they last till the end. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments. And that's a picture of righteousness. And I will never, Jesus says, I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. Now, does that mean that your name could be blotted out, could be erased? the book at some point you know your name was in there Uh oh no it's not well there's a passage in revelation 22 might suggest that if you were a false prophet but that's not the whole deal that's not it because we know eternal security and the assurance of salvation is taught throughout the bible amen for instance the passage of the good shepherd in john 10 jesus tells us this very important. I gave them eternal life, speaking of believers, his people, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. So that's pretty clear. If your name is in the book, it's always going to be in the book. Don't worry about it. If you don't think your name is in the book, worry about it right there were false prophets or teachers at that time that Paul mentioned in the letter they were professing Christians but they didn't possess Christ they showed themselves to be unbelievers after all like 1 John talks about or like the Lord mentions in the Sermon on the Mount Matthew 7 remember Lord Lord didn't we prophesy in your name do stuff in your name Jesus said, depart from me, you workers of iniquity. I never knew you. You were like never with me. Why? Because they didn't really do the will of the Lord. They didn't obey him. They did some surface religious stuff. So these Philippians, they were assured that while they weren't as united as they could be, should be, they are citizens of heaven who are going to experience the fullness of salvation together. And that should encourage them then to find unity together. That's what Paul's exhorting them to do. Reconcile yourselves, make peace, and if you don't, I'm going to find somebody else in the church, pastor, maybe an elder, someone in the church that knows you, and they're going to help you in your conflict or your struggle. So, again, why is it important that we start here with counseling? Because it's a question of worldview and theology, folks. The Bible teaches that the Bible is the all-credible, all-sufficient, authoritative source of truth to help us resolve issues of life and in the heart, struggles, conflict, and disunity between people. Rather than going to a secular, first off, a secular, humanistic, Freudian, mental health philosophy that is going to often contradict the scripture or undermine its truth as to how to deal with one another. We're talking about kingdom counsel here versus worldly theories when they counsel for behavioral issues. They mean well. We have the word, though. They don't. The Bible teaches. Listen carefully. Get this. One of the reasons why you're here and you are commanded, by the way, to come and regularly worship God and fellowship with the saints is to be equipped and to be trained and to be available to disciple 
in counseling one another. Pastor, I hope you have a text for that. I just happened to, Hebrews 10. The pastor's favorite, of course. But I'm going to give you a part you hadn't considered before. Hebrews 10, verse 24 says, remember, let us, the writer says, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. So he's talking to a church, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some. Keyword here, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. You see day is capitalized. That's referring to the second coming of Christ, the day of the Lord, judgment. For if we go now, here's the part you often don't hear. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Whoa. In other words, we are not to neglect the coming together in fellowship. And that's not restricted, by the way, to Sunday, the Lord's Day. The implication is this. Whenever the church meets, that's the principle, as the day, second coming gets closer, we are to meet and provoke literally one another to good works or Christ-likeness by encouraging one another. Because if you go on sinning, you're not dealing with conflicts and issues. Knowing the truth, get this, you may not be in the Lamb's book of life and you may be facing judgment. So, if you need help with sin or to resolve a conflict, you're in this room, you need to get help if you can't do it yourself. And disciples, if you know or see a brother or sister needing help or reaching out or struggling, take the initiative and provide the help, just like Paul is calling for in the text. Now you say, Pastor, I don't know how to help. I'm not a trained or professional counselor. That's why we take people to those folks. I don't know what to say. I get it. Problem solved. According to this book, you don't have to be a professional. You just need to be a Christian who loves Jesus and his word and his people. You know, this is the issue. We're so used to going to outside professional help for things that God intended us to do either for ourselves or for each other with the ministry of the local church that we're crippled sometimes when spiritual issues come up and we go outside. Folks, I'll, I'll give you a little teaser for what we're talking about next week. This is how youth ministry and children's ministry started in church. Do you know why they started in the mid-20th century? They didn't start till the mid-20th century, by the way. They started because you had kids, young people, teenagers that were undiscipled by their parents, and the church well-meaning said, if we don't do it, nobody will. And it got to the point where youth pastors and such started telling the parents, don't try this at home. We're the professionals. That's how we got to where we are. This text, though, in Hebrews, gives us big mama instruction on all you have to do to help or encourage one another. The word encourage from Greek means to literally come aside someone and teach them and strengthen them by admonishing that means correcting them lovingly and exhorting them, that's stirring up the good works, Hebrews 10, exhorting them to repent, walk in faith unto Christ in good works. Does that mean you have to learn psychological methods or behavioral techniques on top of that? Nope. You don't. You just need to know this book. 2 Timothy 3:16 and 17 says it. All scripture is given by God, inspired by God, and is profitable or good for instruction in doctrine, training in righteousness, so that the man or woman of God would be thoroughly equipped, made perfect in every way. So Paul's telling Timothy, you got this and the spirit. That's all you need. That's all you need. Look, if you eat Bible, if you eat enough Bible, you're going to talk Bible. That's how you'll be able to help people. For instance, you say, brother, I'm hurting. I, I, I feel down. I'm stressed out. I'm discouraged. Okay. I feel you. 
Can I give you some Psalm 62 as we sang today? Verse 2. God alone is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be greatly shaken. Verse 6. He only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be shaken. You, you give that to people when they need it. Or sister, I, I'm feeling depressed. I'm down. I'm in despair. I'm in melancholy. I get it. So 1 John 1, 4 says, And we, the apostles, are writing these things so that your joy may be complete. He wrote the Bible. He's writing his letter so that our joy would be complete. What things is he talking about? He's talking about Christ and the Son of God and the gospel. Joy. Joy comes from biblical counsel. Really? Yeah. Psalm 119.24. Your testimonies are my delight. They are my what? My counselors. You can get a handle on your sin if you get counsel from the word. Psalm 119 also says, how can I keep my way pure by keeping it according to your word? I'll give you three examples alone from the book of Ephesians, which is just before our text. Hang in there. Almost done here. Ephesians chapter 4. Just to give you a little idea on this. You're you're talking to someone. You're trying to help someone in discipleship and counseling. Brother, I don't want to forgive so-and-so. I don't want to do that. I don't feel like it. Well, Ephesians 4.32 says, Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. I'm having issues at home with my spouse. We're not talking. We're not relating. Well, verse 26 says, Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Resolve your problem. Reconcile before you go to bed. Because if not, it festers and it becomes bitterness and it grows and grows, right? Thirdly, I'm constantly arguing with people online and social media. I can't stop. Ephesians 4.29 says, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. Oh, That's a, that's a big one today. Tact. Knowing what to say, when to say it, how to say it, and where to say it. The church member Paul called on to help Euodia and Synthike, they get their act together, right? He wants them to get their act together based on what Paul's done and he's modeled. When he was leaving the church at Ephesus, where I just quoted from, it says in Acts, Remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears, Paul said. So basically, again, summarizing, we're encouraging, we're exhorting. That's how we do discipleship and counseling. Basically, it means that you have three things. You have concern for a brother or sister. You lovingly confront them. And then you prayerfully ask them to change by the means of grace. Okay, this is shepherding people. This is what we call our midweek meetings here in Christ Community Church for a reason. Shepherd groups, because shepherding is to take place beyond the pastors and elders. It's to take place between us all. This is discipleship 101, folks. Some of you are hearing this put this way for the first time, but this is a 2000 year old message. There's nothing new here in what we've talked about. It's just not talked about or taught as often as it should be. So I'm going to close here with an example and an application real quick of church shepherding. The application is this. Discipleship and counseling is only going to happen best when you know who you're helping. Time equals trust. You have to spend time with people to build up trust where they'll come to you to either help resolve a situation or to confess something. You have to be willing to get out of your comfort zone and take the initiative like several of you do in our fellowship meetings or at the Sunday morning meeting. Look, we talk about being a church family. Greet each other that way in the greeting, like family. You should know by now virtually everyone here by name. And if you don't, get to know them by name. This is my love feast mission. Probably you don't notice this, but when we have our monthly love feast after the Lord's Supper on the first of the month, 
I make sure that I gravitate towards someone that's sitting alone or new. Why? Because they don't know anyone yet. They don't fit in. I'm not going to let them hang like that. I want them to know this is a church family, and they can be a part of it. You have to do that too. This is not just my job description. What I'm telling you today is huge. You're getting to know that part of your ministry as a member of the church, as a regular attender, is you've got shepherding to do, pastoring to do. You're all, in essence, in a sense, unofficially, like pastors. You need to know that. The example of discipleship and counseling sometimes, and we'll close with this, means just listening. Just listening. Just listen to this from the book of Job. Mark it. Job chapter 2. Now you know all the tragedy, everything Job went through. Talk about a guy that could have very easily gone to his local psychologist or psychiatrist if he had one. Inexplicable tragedy, trial and tribulation is happening to this guy. And this is how it's handled. Now when Job 2.11. Now when Job's three friends heard of all this evil that had come upon him, they came each from his own place. So they're going to Job. Eliphaz, Bildad, Zophar. They made an appointment together to come to show him sympathy and comfort him. And when they saw him from a distance, they didn't recognize him. I mean, he was covered with boils, sackcloth, ashes, all this stuff. And it says, they raised their voices and wept, and they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads toward heaven. And they sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights, and no one spoke a word to him. And they, for they saw, because they saw, his suffering was very great. Sometimes discipleship and counseling is you say nothing. You're just a shoulder to cry on. Because sometimes something is so tragic, you have no word. You have no explanation. Why did this happen? Why did God allow this? Sometimes we have to say specifically, I don't know. I don't know. Let's pray. And that's what God's people do. That's counseling. You're hearing here discipleship in counseling. Because they love their brother and friend. Remember this old saying, no one cares how much you know until they know how much you care. Christ Community Church is a God-glorifying, Christ-exalting, and Bible-centered body of believers who love God and love people by making disciples of Jesus Christ. For more information on us and to learn how to give towards our media ministry, please go to our website at www.christcomchurch.org. That's christcomchurch.org. And look for the Giving tab at the top of the homepage.